Let's pray together. Father, we take that song as our prayer, and we pray that you would make our hearts steadfast. And I pray that you would make every heart in this room open to see the light, the knowledge of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And I pray that you would help us to behold him as he is. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before Paul was an apostle, he was Saul the Pharisee. By all accounts, he was a vicious tyrant, breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord Jesus. And you remember the occasion in Acts 9 where he was... Um, he had sought authorization to travel to the synagogues in Damascus so that he, if he could find any Christians there, he might arrest them and bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was approaching Damascus on his way to cause as much destruction as he could to the believers there, suddenly this light comes out of heaven, flashes all around him. It overwhelms him. He falls to the ground. And he hears the voice of the Lord Jesus himself saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul replies, who are you, Lord? He doesn't realize it yet, but he has just called Jesus Lord. Who are you, Lord? And then Jesus replies, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and it shall be told you what you must do. And so when Paul gets up to go into the city, he's completely blind. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the city, Jesus is preparing the way. He appears to a disciple named Ananias, and he tells him where he can find Saul of Tarsus. And he tells him that Saul is waiting for him. And so Ananias is naturally reluctant to do this because every Christian has heard of Saul of Tarsus at this point. This is a guy you do not want to be around. He's trying to destroy you. And so he doesn't really want to do this, but Jesus reassures him. He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So Ananias goes to where Saul is staying, and he says to Saul, he says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with with the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible says, immediately, there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he arose and was baptized. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. I'm telling you this story, even though it's familiar to you, Primarily because I don't think you'll understand what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 if you don't understand his own testimony, which involved a vision of the glory of Jesus, light, blindness, and then sight again. There's no question that when you consider Saul the Pharisee, 
He's not exactly the kind of person that you would think of as a prime evangelistic target. He seemed quite the opposite from that. If ever there were a hard case, he was a hard case. But he was worse than a hard case because he was dangerous. Think about it. If God told you to go to a person who was a vicious and vindictive anti-Christian who had the power and the means to destroy you as a Christian, would you have the courage to go to that guy and say, hey, I'm a Christian. Would you like to be one too? The truth is that many Christians are reluctant to share their faith with anyone, much less with somebody who's a threat to them. And yet, throughout the history of Christianity, the gospel has penetrated the darkest of hearts and transformed the hardest of cases. How is that? What kind of ministry is it that bowls over the hard cases and turns them into courageous, soft-hearted saints like the Apostle Paul? It turns out that the only kind of ministry sufficient for the hard cases is the ministry that has a lot of light and a lot of spirit. And so the question is, is how do we get that? How do we get that kind of ministry? Well, Paul's going to answer that question in the passage before us this morning. If you haven't already, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 1 to 6. Now, in our last message in 2 Corinthians, we looked at uh, chapter 3 and verse 18, which is the culminating verse in Paul's exposition of the new covenant ministry of the Spirit. And in verse 18, he explains that the new covenant work of the Spirit brings transformation to every single person who experiences it. And now, in chapter 4, the passage before us today, Paul is going to explain why he doesn't lose heart in ministry, and he's going to expound exactly what a faithful new covenant ministry is supposed to look like. The kind of ministry that penetrates to the hard cases is going to look like this. This is the mode of faithful ministry. And he's going to unpack this in three steps. He talks about, first of all, the integrity of ministry in verses 1 to 2, the veiling of ministry in verses 3 to 4, and the focus of ministry in verses 5 to 6. Now, to be sure, Paul talks of his own apostolic ministry in this passage. But what he says about his own ministry has implication for our ministries as well. So the first thing you want to see here is the integrity of his ministry in verses 1 to 2. Everybody look at verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So notice here, just as before in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3, we're back to Paul using the first person plural to refer to himself. So when he says, we do not lose heart, he means, I do not lose heart. And that little uh, Greek phrase that's translated with the word therefore literally means because of this. And the this is pointing to something. And in this case, the this is pointing forward. So what it means is something like this. Because of this, because of this, because I have this ministry, as I have received mercy, I do not lose heart. Do you get the sense of this now? Because I have received this ministry, 
as I have received mercy, literally, it's not by the mercy of God, it's as I have been mercied, I do not lose heart. Now, when he says, as I have been mercied, you know he's referring back to his own conversion. Everything he's about to say is growing out of what happened to him when he was mercied in that, that instance. He saw light, the scales fell off, and all of the rest. But notice what he says. He says, I do not lose heart as I have been mercied. To lose heart means to lose your motivation in continuing a desirable pattern or conduct, of act, uh, or, conduct or activity. So um, it means to like lose enthusiasm or to be discouraged. Now, the reason that Paul doesn't lose heart, he says, is because of this ministry. It's because of this ministry I don't lose heart. And now you know what the ministry is because we've been studying cha chapter 3. And because this is a reference actually back to chapter 3 and verse 6. Where Paul says that he is a minister of the new covenant. He's using the a same word group there. He's the minister of the new covenant. And he says that the new covenant in verse 7 is the ministry of the spirit. And in verse 8 it's a ministry of righteousness. So he's, when he talks about ministry that's what he's talking about. What we already saw in chapter 3. So Paul is saying, in other words, that he draws strength from his ministry, uh, for his ministry, because the ministry of the Spirit that brings life to the Corinthians is the very ministry that brings life to Paul. So uh, this is a really amazing dynamic. You know, when I sit down to prepare a sermon for you, I begin studying the text to preach to you I'm being strengthened by the very thing that I'm aiming to minister to you. It happens every time. I'm being admonished and encouraged and moved along in my faith as I'm preparing to exhort you to do the same thing. I'm drawing strength from the ministry, from the new covenant ministry that I'm trying to deliver to you. That's just the nature of this ministry. The Holy Spirit is alive and well and at work in every facet of the ministry, strengthening the minister and bringing life to those he ministers to. Paul says that this is his experience. He doesn't lose heart in the work because he's drawing on the same new covenant power in the midst of the work. You see what he's saying here? Now, so this is a remarkable statement from the apostle because if anybody had a reason to be discouraged about the work of the ministry, it was the Apostle Paul. Paul had experienced exquisite suffering due to his ministry. You can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 to see him give a litany of what happened to him. He was stoned. He was whipped. He said he got the 39 lashes numerous times. He had been beaten without rod, with rods. He had been shipwrecked. He had, he had had countless sleepless nights in hunger and in thirst often without food in cold and in exposure and on top of all that he says there's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches which means all these relationships I have with the people in the churches like the people in Corinth and sometimes those relationships get frayed and strained and they don't want me there and I'm out here getting beat up and the and, and sometimes the people I'm working for do not appreciate it and so he's talking about all of this. If anybody had a reason to be discouraged or to lose heart, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And yet Paul says, I, I don't lose heart. How is that possible? 
Well, it's possible because of the ministry he was given by the mercy of God, which literally, it's not by the mercy of God, but as I received mercy or as I was mercied. His resource for suffering is the new covenant ministry of the Spirit given to him at his conversion, which he is still drawing on for strength, and he's not losing heart because of that. So this is a very simple thing, but my goodness, this is probably the most profound thing I could, I could say to you this morning. If you're not drinking from the gospel well and being refreshed by it, it is very unlikely that you will be able to convince others to drink from it and to be refreshed by it. If you are morose and sad and not drawing strength from the gospel, nobody's going to want what you have. And if you try to give it to them, it's going to appear hypocritical. And in fact, you will probably lose heart before you even invite them to drink from it. So let's just be real practical. Let me address the heads of the homes here for a minute. Dads, you're not going to be able to lead your family to the life-giving stream if you aren't drinking from it yourself. Which means that the word that you're depending on to save your children and to sanctify your wife has to be the same word that has saved you and is sustaining and refreshing you. If that word isn't sustaining you, then you're going to lose heart when difficulties come. And nobody, there's going to be no overflow for the rest of the household. What that means is, is that you have to plant your roots by streams of water the streams of water that are God's word. And when you do that, your leaf won't wither and you will yield fruit and your ministry will prosper in your home. This is true not just with dads at home. This is true with every Christian wherever you are. You have to be drawing strength and sustenance from the very thing that you're offering to others or else you really don't have much to offer. So Paul says here in verse 1 that he doesn't lose heart, but in verse 2 he explains what he does do. So look at verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The ESV has this verse broken up into two sentences, but it's really actually one sentence in the original, which is significant because every subsequent clause in this sentence is helping to explain the preceding one. So Paul says that in his apostolic ministry, he has renounced, quote, disgraceful and underhanded ways. Okay, well, what does he mean by disgraceful and underhanded ways? Well, it's defined by the next two clauses. Disgraceful and underhanded ways would include practicing cunning or tampering with God's word. So what, what does that mean? To practice cunning. Literally, it's, it means something like to walk in craftiness. It's an idea that's associated with what Satan himself does when he you know, deceived Eve. Okay, Paul talks about later in this book. It's the idea that a person might do or say anything in order to attract a crowd. In fact, this word in Greek is panurgia, and it's a word that means readiness to do anything. 
It's the idea that someone might so conduct his ministry so to be popular with the masses. It's as if one might be content to gather a crowd at the expense of gathering actual converts. Well, how do you do that? How, how, does a, how does a minister of the new covenant take the powerful ministry of the Spirit and dilute it to a public relations ploy or to a, a, you know, some kind of a crowd-pleasing sideshow? Well, the next phrase tell you, tells you how it's done. He says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. That word, tamper uh, with God's word, is, is this Greek word, daluntes, uh, which is used just this one time in the Bible. And it means to make false through deception or distortion. To, it, it means something like to falsify or to adulterate. It's the idea of taking something that's pure and injecting impurities into it. Or of taking something that's sound and making it unsound by manipulating some small part that compromises the whole. So have you ever played the game Jenga? Y'all ever seen that game Jenga before? Jenga is this game where you build a tower of wooden blocks and then players take turns pulling out blocks one at a time from the structure. And the object of the game is to keep the structure standing and to not let it fall when it's your turn so that when you pull something out, it doesn't fall. And if the structure collapses, when you pull your piece out, if it, when it's your turn, you lose. And it's pretty amazing how long this little structure will last when you're pulling little you know, pieces out. You can get 5, 10, 15 pieces. I don't know how many pieces out, but a lot of them out, it's still standing there. But the truth is, is if you wanted to ignore the rules and see how quickly you can make the structure fall, it's really easy. You go to the bottom, go to the foundation, and you pull out one or two pieces, and guess what? Boom, whole thing, gone. You can do the same thing with biblical doctrine. You can manipulate individual pieces near the foundation and make the whole structure collapse. If, for example, you take away the piece that says Jesus is God, then the rest of what you say, no matter what else you build on top of that, it's compromised and is eventually going to collapse. And it doesn't matter if you're telling the people that Jesus died on the cross. If he's not God, it will not save them. If you take away the peace about the resurrection, no matter what you say about Jesus and what he did, that message will not save them. Adulterating the word of God is to falsify the message. And you don't have to change all of it. You can change pieces of it in a way that make it ineffective. And make it non-saving. That's why you see such an emphasis in scripture about the integrity of every word from God. And about the necessity of holding to all of it. You don't pick and choose. Proverbs 35. Every word of God proves true. John 17, 17. Jesus himself says, your word is truth. Jesus says in Matthew 4, 4. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Not some words, all of them. The Apostle Paul in Acts 20, he himself said this. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And it's really key to understand what Paul's saying there. He's saying that if I had failed to deliver every word 
of God to you, then I would have had blood on my hands. Why? Because the message that saves people can be corrupted or adulterated if you leave certain parts of it out. And then people won't be saved or they will stumble or be weak if the message is corrupted when it's delivered to them. And the person who delivers the adulterated message is going to be held responsible for that corruption. And so Paul says, I would have had blood on my hands if I had not delivered to you the whole counsel of God. So the question then becomes, why would anybody do that? If you're a Christian and you have the message of salvation, why would you change it in such a way so that it's no longer effective and maybe it it doesn't even save the people who believe in it? Well, all you have to do, again, is to look at the ministry of Paul to know the answer to that question. When you look at the ministry of Paul, you understand that he was not getting a string of attaboys for preaching the whole counsel of God. He was getting beaten and whipped and stoned and starved and imprisoned and ultimately martyred for the sake of preaching the whole word of God. So it's not hard, really, to imagine why someone might be tempted to adulterate the word. If you just change or omit those parts that you know are offensive to people, you can get yourself out of a whole lot of suffering and grief. Someone says, well, yeah, but that's Paul. You know, that's not our problem. People don't get persecuted physically like like Paul did then. Well, that's wrong. Only Americans say that kind of a thing. Christians do get persecuted today, just like Paul did then, and even worse. And the test that they face is whether they will persevere in faithfulness to the word, come what may. Will they adulterate the word to escape the suffering, or will they hold to the word and preach that word, no matter what happens? And truth be known, even though you may not be facing physical threats, For what you say to people about the word of God, you are facing the very same temptation. There are certain things about what you and I believe that are difficult and that you find difficult to share with friends and family because you don't want to lose face with them or suffer embarrassment before them. All of us, we understand these feelings. You don't want to be the odd man out at work or at school. Or perhaps you think it would just be better to fudge some of the details so that you can get people on board with you superficially. And so your mode of evangelism sort of fudges things. Some churches, their modes of evangelism are fudging everywhere. If you know it will offend someone to tell them that Jesus is the only way, then there's a real temptation to adulterate God's word by removing that part. And and letting people believe that maybe there are other ways. If you know that it will offend someone to tell them that they need to repent of their sin in order to follow Jesus, then there's a temptation just to leave that part out. Or you just leave out the parts maybe that identify what their particular sins are. And so you let them labor under the illusion that they can continue in a life of, I don't know, sexual immorality while also following Jesus. Or you... You fail to communicate to them the whole counsel of God to them so that they might repent and believe. (coughs) And I should say this, 
this is a problem that faces all believers, but this is a temptation that's big time for pastors. We have people in this room who are aspiring to the ministry. There's a reason that you'll never hear about certain topics in certain churches. There are some churches where you will never hear a sermon about divorce or about racism or about pornography or about any number of things that are divisive out there, but that we need to be clear about in here, but we don't want to face. And so people just don't talk about it. People don't want to be confronted. They want to be coddled. And some churches aim their entire ministry at making people feel comfortable. In some places, I mean, you just turn on the TV, you can see this. You'll never hear about sin at all. Period. The biggest crowds are gathered through that kind of less than whole counsel of God kind of preaching. The preaching that adulterates the word of God. So you can be a, a kind of successful by, by doing this. So you can avoid persecution, you can avoid suffering, and you can aggrandize your ministry <clears throat> this way. So th th these temptations are very, very real. And they're, people are succumbing to them all the time. Well, what's the problem with this? The problem is that when you gather people like this, you'll have to keep them like that. Now, in some ministries that do this, they think they're, they're just, you know, they're trying to keep it simple to gather them in, and then they'll take them deeper into discipleship. No, you won't. If you can't proclaim the whole counsel of God up front, you won't be able to do it later. If you gather them through cunning schemes to conceal the whole counsel of God, you will never be at a place where you can bring the whole word to them because many of them won't even be real Christians. They bought into a gospel but not the gospel, and they remain unregenerate. And now they're worse off than they were before because now they don't know it. They've gotten just enough of the adulterated religion to reel them in to some guy's preaching but not enough to save them. That's, like, that's the worst this is why the scripture says teachers incur stricter judgment. You cannot do this. You have to deliver the whole counsel of God. And you can't say, well, this is too hard. So we're not going to talk about that. When the Bible says that, we don't do anyone any favors by playing hide and seek with God's truth. And so that's why Paul says there at the end of verse 2, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul says, I don't conceal or adulterate. I reveal and conciliate. I preach the whole counsel of God no matter how people respond. Remember Paul says in 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy 4, preach the word in season and out of season. means you preach it when it's popular. When it's not popular, you just have to say it. That's our job, too. We're to bring God's unadulterated word no matter whether they beat us or bless us. We are ministers of reconciliation on God's terms, not on our terms. Paul says that he commended himself to every man's conscience in the sight of God, meaning that he recommends himself to every person by preaching and walking in the truth. That's what that means. He lives a life... And he shapes his message in such a way so as to appeal to that faculty that every person has of telling right and wrong. He appeals to every man's conscience. 
He says, you judge for yourself whether this is right or wrong. And he does it, he says, in the sight of God, which means that he knows that God is his ultimate judge, not the people that he preaches to. This is key. If you don't approach your ministry, whether you're a preacher like me in a pulpit or whether you're a Christian who goes to work and is just praying about how you can share the gospel with people. If you don't approach your ministry this way in the sight of God as if God were the ultimate judge, then you will end up playing to the crowd in order to please the crowd. And you might grow a crowd that way. You might get a quote-unquote convert that way, but you won't grow a church that way. You won't grow God's kingdom that way, and you won't be pleasing to the Lord. So the first point is the longest point. It's about the integrity of Paul's ministry, and really of any, any ministry. It's that there has to be a commitment to communicating the unadulterated word of God. So that's the integrity of ministry. Look at the second thing here, the veiling of ministry. Everybody look at verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Let me restate this in the terms that he means. Even if my gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So if, if you're paying attention to context, it's not hard to see why, would follow, why Paul would follow instruction about integrity in ministry with instruction about the veiling of ministry. Because some of these Corinthians, I mean, they were there with him. Remember, he stayed with them for a year and a half. They saw what happened to him in Corinth. They saw that he came and preached in the synagogue until he got kicked out. They saw that he got massive blowback in Corinth. Now, they themselves were saved. They themselves came to faith by a powerful demonstration of the Spirit. But there were a whole lot of people who didn't want to listen to Paul. The Jews were ready to run him off. They were trying to get him strung up. The, a lot of Greeks didn't, weren't buying what he was selling. And so there's a question mark. Okay, if your gospel is so bright and illuminating, what's with all these people who don't listen, who don't see? Paul is trying to say the problem is not with the message or what I'm preaching. The problem is on their end. Paul says, the success of ministry is not defined by impressive crowds, but by impressive faithfulness. His job, our job, as ministers of the reconciliation, is to be faithful. God's job is to supply the fruit. He will supply it in the measure that he wants. And if there are a number of people who reject the gospel message, that's not evidence of a deficiency on the part of the, mes on the, part of the, on the, part of the message. If people reject the message, here's the reason why. Many of the people that we are communicating with have a veil over their face preventing them from seeing the glory of Christ for what it is. Where you and I see glory, they see gloom. And they want nothing to do with it. Where does this blindness come from? Well, we know from elsewhere in Paul's teaching that it comes from our own sinful nature. Paul says in Romans 1, for example, that sinners by nature suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So sinners are in part guilty of pulling the wool over their own eyes because they don't want the gospel. 
Their flesh is warring against it. John chapter 3 says this, And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. People loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked, wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So there is this built-in thing in sinners apart from grace that wants to flee from the light. Okay, So there, there's that aspect. That's not what he's emphasizing here, our own agency in suppressing the truth. In 2 Corinthians, he is emphasizing satanic agency. For it says that, he, Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. Now, the God of this world is no less than the devil himself. This is the only place in the Bible that Satan is referred to as the God of this world. And this is not, Paul's not trying to say that Satan is a deity when he says that. It is to say that he is a supernatural being to whom God has given a measure of leash in this age. What do I mean by that? If Satan is a dog, he's God's dog. God lets him operate by turns on a short leash and on a long leash according to his purposes. And in this present age, God has given him some range. Uh, Luke chapter 4, in the, when Jesus was being tempted by the devil, you remember the devil says to Jesus, it has been delivered to me, the kingdoms of the world have been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Meaning, I've been given some leash in the kingdoms of the world. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the devil. The whole world lies in the power of the devil. That's leash. John 12, 31. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Who is this opposition? The ruler of this world. John 16, 11, The ruler of this world has been judged. So even though Satan's judgment is coming, God has given him leash, um, some amount of range to wreak a certain amount of havoc before his judgment finally comes. And one of the things that he does is to blind people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Christ is the image of God in that he is the exact rep uh, representation of God's nature. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, Jesus says in John 14. Satan is trying to keep people from seeing that. He is blinding them to that. Look at that phrase, the light of the gospel. That phrase, the light of the gospel, means light that comes from the gospel. What kind of light comes from the gospel? Well, it's not a physical light. It's the gospel about the glory of Christ. <clears throat> you remember in, John, in, uh, in First, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, glory is described in the Old Testament as a kind of radiance. Remember, 2 Corinthians 3 is describing this whole situation in Exodus 34 where the people saw glory beaming off of Moses' face. And Paul is saying, look, in the new covenant, we've got glory beaming off of Jesus' face. And um, we're seeing that glory as it were. Now, Paul saw a physical event at his own conversion, a physical glory, light flashing around him when he was saved. But what he's saying for everybody else is not a physical light that everyone sees, but a glory beaming from the gospel. You remember that from, from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So there's a physical radiance, but there's also a spiritual radiance in the gospel, 
for it reveals to us who Jesus is and what he did for us. Here's what the glory is. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who was sent by God into the world to save sinners. He lived a perfect, sinless life and was obedient to God all the way to the point of dying on a Roman cross. After three days, he rose from the dead and was seen by many witnesses. And then he ascended into heaven to sit at his Father's right hand. Jesus' death paid the penalty for our sins, the penalty that we deserve. His resurrection is the guarantee of eternal life for everyone who turns away from their sin and trusts in Christ alone to save him. That is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That message. And Satan is endeavoring daily to keep, pe keep people from seeing it. Paul is saying that sinners who resist the gospel are no evidence of unfaithfulness in his ministry or of some failure of that message. If his gospel is veiled, it is not due to subterfuge on his part. It's due to the fact that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, sealing them off from seeing the truth. These are weighty realities. And if you are within the sound of my voice right now and you are not trusting in Christ, you need to know that the Bible says that you are perishing. You are on your way to death right now. And there's coming a day when all of the things that capture your attention right now, they're not going to matter to you anymore. Because when you stand before God at the judgment, the only thing that is going to matter is whether or not you are among the sheep or among the goats. And if you are not trusting in Christ, you are still in your sins. And if you are in your sins on that day, you will be among the goats and you will be cast down to an eternal fire of judgment the horror of which you will not be able to bear, but which you must bear for endless ages. That's what it means to be perishing. That's what awaits you if you die in your sin. Just when you think it may be almost over, it's not over. But if right now you renounce your sin and trust in Christ to save you, the Bible says that this death, his death, will count for you. His resurrection will be your life, and you will have nothing to fear on the other side of death, and you will have nothing to fear from the judgment. There is nothing that you can do to earn this. It is a free gift of grace, freely given to you when you simply believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. If you are here and you are not trusting Christ for this. You need to ask yourself why. Why are you spurning the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ? One of the reasons is because Satan has been working in invisible ways to keep you from the message that you just heard. He's working overtime to keep you fixed your attention fixed on your job, on your money, your love life, your stuff, your entertainment. He doesn't care what it is. He just wants to keep your attention fixed 
elsewhere. But for whatever reason, if you're listening to me now, today he failed. At least he has in this respect. You're not sleeping in this morning. You're somehow hearing this message this morning. You're not ignoring church again. Somehow you're listening to this and God has brought you to a place where you have had the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ declared to you. And you have a choice right now. You can either open your eyes and let the light in or you can walk out of here and go back to your satanic bondage. So what will it be? I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's word and by the work of God's grace in my own life that it is much better to serve Christ than to be blinded by Satan. Satan will give you the stuff that you want, but only to keep you in the dark. Jesus will give you the stuff that you need and bring you into the light. All of your guilt, all of your shame, he will wipe away. He will hold none of it. Against you, and he will walk with you through every pleasure and through every pain, and even through the valley of the shadow of death. You will fear no evil because he will be with you. So, I came this morning to challenge anybody in within the sound of my voice what is keeping you from turning from sin and the devil and bondage and turning to Christ? If you have not done that, why? You don't even have to wait for this sermon to be over. And it's almost over. (laughs) You need to repent and to trust in Jesus right now. Old things will pass away and everything will become new. Believe. Believe in him and you will be saved. So Paul talks about the integrity of ministry. And then Paul talks about the veiling of ministry. And finally he talks about the focus of ministry. Everybody look at verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That four at the beginning of verse 5 says that this is a further explanation of Paul's open manifestation of the truth. He's saying that even though Satan has attempted to put a veil over people's eyes, he, Paul, has preached openly and honestly. The deception is not on his end, but on Satan's end. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for his sake. Paul says, I'm not the focus of my preaching. If he would have been the focus of his preaching... He would have been adulterating the word of God. I'm not the focus of my preaching. The point of me traveling all the way to Corinth and preaching to you was not so that I could gather a crowd of Paul admirers. I did not preach myself. Rather, I preached Christ, and that is who you believed in as Lord. I didn't preach myself as Lord. I preached myself as slave of Christ in his service to bring you to Christ. And so that's what Paul's saying. He's simply saying that he didn't adulterate the word of God with his own agenda or trying to self-aggrandize. He preached to them the whole counsel of God. For that reason, they became reconciled to God through Christ. Why did he preach like that? (coughs) 
Well, because this is how the Bible says light works. He alludes to Genesis 1, the Genesis 1 creation account, to establish the point. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Keep in mind when he says, he has shown in our hearts, he means he has shown in my heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Genesis 1, there was no light. Remember, darkness was over the face of the deep. And then God says, let there be light. And there was light. And in the same way, Paul is saying, God speaks into existence the light of the gospel. Just as God says, let there be light, and there was light in the universe, God says, let there be light, and there appears light in darkened hearts. But here I think Paul is indicating a, a certain kind of order. <clears throat> Remember, God shines in our hearts. Mean, Paul means God shines in my heart. So first, God shone in Paul's heart when Christ appeared to him on the Damascus Road and gave him that physical experience of blindness and then that blindness being removed, scales literally falling from his eyes after Ananias spoke to him in the name of Jesus. When God said, let there be light in Paul's eyes, immediately Paul began to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. So what happened? The light comes into Paul, and then the light goes out of Paul. So he receives the light to give the light. He receives the light to proclaim the light. And that's what Paul's saying. God has shown in my heart so that I can shine, he can shine through me to you to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul is describing what it's like when the external call of the gospel meets with the internal call of the Spirit. It's the moment that we call regeneration. Where there was once death, there becomes life and light. New life through the powerful Spirit of God, working through the Word of God. And there's nothing that can stop what God is doing when he decides to move through his word like that. Nothing. He will transform the hardest of cases. You can't manipulate it. The spirit moves how it wishes. You, can see, you can't see it with your eyes, but you can see its effects. How do you lay hold to that kind of power in ministry? You do it by recognizing that the integrity of ministry is to preach the unadulterated word of God. You recognize you don't have to lose heart in this ministry. If the gospel appears veiled to some people, it's not because the, the message is weak. It's because there are deeper spiritual realities out there. And you recognize that the focus of ministry is supposed to be Jesus Christ and him crucified. For we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what he's called us to do, and that's the, min the ministry. That's the word that's going to transform the world. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would use this word to make us into your image, to see the light, 
And then I pray that you would make the light go out of us. And I pray that you would use us to see others come to faith. Father, I have prayed and now I'm praying again for lost people in this room, lost people listening to a recording, lost people who are watching on Facebook. I'm praying that you would awaken them and that you would cause the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ to blaze and flash around them. And I pray that they would see that they would turn from their sin and turn to you and be saved. Father, do this work, and we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.